All right. So another story I want to tell you about Mike Lindell is that you always see him with a cross on. First time I ever saw him it was in Washington, D.C. at the National Prayer Breakfast, he had a big cross on. He is a Christian, and it's great because he's not afraid of his faith. And one of the other things you can get beyond the 100 products that he has, like the slippers that I've talked about, or the small pillows for your back if you're sitting too much in a chair, is you can get some religious pillows. Now, here's one. This has to do with Noah, Noah and the Ark. And on the backside, they have stories about Noah and the Ark. Now, some people may be offended by that because they think it's politically incorrect to talk about your faith or politically incorrect to call yourself a Christian. I think it's terrific in this day because the world has gone to hell, and we all know that. And it's good to know that even if you have grandchildren, you have young children, you want to get their morals and their values in order, you can always, and it's not just Noah that Mike Lindell is pushing. He's pushing all the biblical stories on these small pillows for kids. So if you're interested in having your kids introduced to some values and some Christian values and Christian beliefs and the stories in the Bible, go ahead and order any of these biblical pillows for Mike Lindell. Now, how do you get them? You get them by the promo code CDM. That's us. So just put in promo code CDM and you can get a biblical pillow for your grandchildren or your young children. And now let's get to our guests. So today on American Conversations, I want to welcome Dr. Rifat Kadir, who uh, is a doctor in Ohio who's been involved with uh, helping patients um, through this COVID crisis. Doctor, welcome. Thank you. Give us a little bit of your background for the audience. So I went to University of Louisville School of Medicine, completed that degree. Then I did a one-year internship in general pediatrics, which was followed by a six-year residency in ear, nose, and throat at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. I practiced ENT for more than 20 years. And over time, I started to um, tap into more and more holistic and natural approaches. Um, I ended up getting a certification by the Institute of Functional Medicine. And at this point in time, have modified um, my whole approach so that what I practice is something called integrative functional medicine. Integrative means that it integrates uh, techniques from different disciplines. So that means that I am not against any particular form of therapy. I tap into multiple forms of therapy. So that would include things like drugs. It would include herbs. It would include lifestyle changes. It would include other treatments that are so-called out of the box or alternative. Um, the functional aspect is that this approach looks to get to underlying causes of illness and disease and approach them in a way to resolve them, not just cover the symptoms over and suppress them. So are there more doctors looking at that type of practice, uh, me medical practice uh, that you have seen in the last 10 years? Absolutely. There is definitely an increase in doctors and there is a huge increase in patients looking for this kind of care. As opposed to take a pill, take a shot? As opposed to the conventional approach, which is very focused on drugs. And, and a lot of that focus is because in standard medical education, of which I am a product, 
we're not taught any lifestyle-based therapies. We're not taught any nutrition. The only thing we're taught is how to make a diagnosis and how to find the right antidote or drug for that, uh, for that disease or condition. And this approach is wildly different. And I think with the age of the uh, internet too, everybody gets online, looks up everything. They find that there are other ways. That's true. That is true. And there's more there. I, I keep on thinking that out of this COVID crisis, that we're going to have more people that are going to be looking at the wellness industry that will be in direct competition to the pharmaceutical industry, hopefully. Um, but unfortunately, the pharmaceutical in industry seems to have the market right now um, in the minds of many of the doctors that are out there. Let's talk about doctors' fears because I've interviewed uh, a lot of doctors who have given exemptions in the past and then people report them to the medical boards and the medical boards sometimes uh, consist of people who don't have any medical background. So if a complaint is made to a medical board, I've heard you know so many stories about doctors having to hire lawyers to basically represent them before these medical boards. And in some cases, if they lose their license and they have in fact written exemptions in the past, all of those exemptions will be retroactively canceled. And when I learned that in the last two years talking and in interviewing doctors, I, I see also a crisis for doctors as well in terms of holding on to that patient doctor relationship because you know, one shoe doesn't always fit for every ailment that's out there. Do you think doctors, I mean, doctors are in fear today in America for practicing the type of medicine that you do? Doctors are very much in fear. They are fearful of doing anything that goes outside of the guidelines and they feel that they if there is a problem if there is a lawsuit if they have not followed the guidelines they have no leg to stand on doctors are at this point in time pretty much mostly employed under hospital systems and so they are basically required to do what they are required to do they cannot modify it by their own will or by their own, based on their own knowledge. So the system is really very much tying doctors' hands and restricting them. So doctors like me who have their own practice and independent and not an employee of anybody are getting to be extremely rare. How, what's the percentage of doctors that practice like you do but are not coming under the auspices of hospitals? You know, that's a good question, and I don't know a good answer, but I'm thinking it's way below 10%, probably below 5%. Well, that may grow coming out of this, because I think that, that you know, there's a lot of people are now are in fear of going even to hospitals because their rights are taken away once they walk through that ER door. That is absolutely the case. I have had many patients that say, no matter what, I am not going to the hospital. So let's talk about how um, you met Laura Mills because uh, I just did an interview with her and, and, and it's related to you. You work together to, save, to help to save Todd's life in the hospital. What was that experience like for you? This is a 45-year-old man who had COVID. Uh, it was during the crisis in 2021. He 
uh, went into the hospital. His wife didn't have uh, the health proxy. Hence, he was put on a ventilator. He was given remdesivir. He was, sed- I guess, given remdesivir, was sedated, put on a ventilator for um, uh, over a month, and he lost his life. Um, what was that experience for you? Was that it, that type of legal intervention? Was that the first case you'd ever been involved with? Yeah, it it actually had. Uh, so I was just pulled in all of a sudden out of nowhere. Uh, this patient's wife was frantically trying to get some doctor to make recommendations. Uh, the hospital was not willing to entertain anything that she had read on that she had felt might be helpful. And so she was uh, desperately seeking out some some guidance. And that's how I initially spoke with her. And then uh, Laura was representing her and had gotten her the power of attorney. What, what, what kind of lessons did you learn going through that, doctor? I, I think, you know, I was floored by just how extreme it has become. Uh, I know that doctors in general have very set ways. This is what I do. This is how I'm trained. There is no other way. Uh, but here, you know, you had a situation where Altman really had no answer for this man. He was dying and there was nothing that they could really do differently or add. And and it just, again, it's just amazing that they were totally unwilling to look at anything, you know, even if what I suggested or what the wife wanted wasn't going to help him, it was going to give that wife a sense that we did everything we could. And this way she's lost him and she feels that it was because she wasn't allowed to do everything she could that maybe that's why she lost him. It's very tragic. It's very tragic, and that's not the only story that we know that's out there, you know, here in the United States. We know of other stories like that of, uh, you know, having to get a lawyer, go to court, get a magistrate, make a decision. It might be for 72 hours. It might be extended. It might be for two weeks. Some people have been put on ivermectin with these legal interventions. Um, do you see, do you, see uh, you see more doctors willing to take that risk the way you did or do you think that that it's going to there's more hurdles until that gate is open there are a lot of hurdles i do not see doctors shifting they are so locked into the current paradigm that it is very very difficult for them to step out i you know i tried early in 2020 in march um i had gotten a hold of a protocol from uh, Shanghai. This is how, you know, the Chinese had the first chance at trying to address this illness and they had found what was working in their hands. And so I found this and I was doing no hospital care, but I knew doctors for that I had worked with in the past who were doing hospital care. And I wanted to very much say, hey, look, here's what the Chinese, you know, they have the most experience. Here's what they're finding useful. I got, I just, nobody wanted to hear anything. Nobody wanted to know anything. And it was the same thing that over the next eight, nine months, we learned here in the U.S. that, yes, we need anticoagulation. Yes, we need to use steroids. Uh, We still never learned about the IV vitamin C. So what is, what is, what, first of all, let's go back to the, what did they say in Shanghai? What were they doing at the time? And what was their rate of success? So they found excellent responses to 
early uh, intervention so that as soon as they, they could, they were on the patient trying to make sure there was no hypercoagulation. We've lost a ton of people from blood clots. So mm -hmm. that they were on way ahead of the time when we finally uh, focused on that. They were ahead on using steroids. IV vitamin C came into use in China because one of the early people, one of the early doctors assigned to the COVID response was a doc like me using integrative therapies and he was using vitamin C intravenously for wound healing. And so it kind of thought occurred to him, let me try this. And IV vitamin C has a lot of track record in the past. Uh, I'm talking like even back as 1940s for treating viral infections, including polio. And, and so back at that time, the success rate that uh, some of the doctors were achieving was just phenomenal. And so there are docs that are starting to realize that we have to go back to these therapies that we have forgotten about. And so in China, they did that. And there was one case report uh, that, uh, you know, aside from their, their general review, they, and they gave doses, use this much IV vitamin C, use it at this stage and do this. And uh, there was one patient they talked about who was literally dying before their eyes. And they dosed him with a high dose of IV vitamin C and the clinician noted that they could watch him improve in real time, which means just as he was declining, they could stand there at the bedside and watch this gentleman improve, which is phenomenal. So that is phenomenal. And, and uh, so let's go through the different stages of this. What should people do who have not had COVID uh, and for preventive? What should they be taking? So, you know, there's there's a lots of simple things. And actually, we just had a presentation a couple of days ago where I gave everyone a handout that addressed what to do. And, and the last two pages of this handout had all the references for all the things that I'm recommending. So I'm just not shooting off the hip here. Everything that I recommend has a basis in published science. So, you know, very simple measures such as you know, using salt water to rinse out your nose, gargle with, to nebulize simple solutions. And into that solution, you can add simple things, a drop of iodine, which we know is antiviral, a little bit of hydrogen peroxide in a, a safe dilution. We recommend food grade, not the other. Again, it's an antiseptic peroxide from my ENT days. We used to use hydrogen peroxide in nasal solutions to break down the mucosa, sorry, the mucus that was pooling in the nose. And, and so it's been used before COVID as a nasal rinse. And so using that makes a huge difference. If you've been exposed to sick people, you come home, rinse out your nose, gargle, put the solution in a little nebulizer, nebulize it. Those simple measures right off the bat are very helpful. You know, getting your vitamin D level up, a lot of data to support that uh, is very uh, supportive of your immune system. How much, vitamin D, how much vitamin D should people take? What you want to target is get your blood level up. According to the medical literature, at least 50. Now, the normal range for most labs cuts off at 30 but that's really not adequate for what we're looking at, which is some of the immune benefits from vitamin D. So we wanna be above 50, um, even up as high as 80. The normal range goes up to 100 for most labs. So we're well within the normal range, but we're on the generous side of it instead of the puny side of it. 
So having your vitamin D level checked is easy to do. And I find that insurance covers that. And then what, what other, what else do you recommend for pre-COVID? So pre-COVID, you know, I recommend a multivitamin because in this day of um, corporate agriculture, we don't have a lot of nutrients in our food. So a multivitamin is a good base. Want to make sure you're getting a reasonable amount of zinc, 25, 30 milligrams in that on a daily basis. You want to be taking vitamin C. That is very helpful. There is published data on different herbals that are actually helpful. Um, black seed oil is, is one. Uh, dandelion tincture is another one. So simple herbals, all of the little herbs that you hear about that support the immune system, everything from mushroom extracts to astragalus, all of these things are helpful. And so there's a ton of different products available depending on the patient and depending on what we're trying to achieve, we use a different one. So it's really vitamins, you know, D, C, a multivitamin, uh, and then using some form of an herbal support, being ready to nebulize. The other thing that is really key is when you get sick, you can get sick quickly. So you want to have everything that you think you're going to need available. You want to have it at home. So we have patients have those vitamins. NAC is another nutrient that's helpful, especially if you start to get lung involvement. That's also been published as something useful. Uh, in addition to that, we have patients have vitamin A at home so they can start that in a higher dose at the onset of illness. I have them get some over-the-counter medications, Pepsid, Famotidine is a generic name, and then using something like Zyrtec, Cetirizine. Those things help prevent the cytokine storm. They help the body not get as irritated and inflamed. For lungs, I'll use a asthma medication called um, Montelukast. Combining those, we know we've been doing it for years for asthma and allergy patients. It's safe and there's no harm in it. There's no negative interaction. So when they first get symptoms, we have them start these over-the-counter medications. If they have a medical history, we wanna be ready to be more aggressive we, you know, we can have them fill prescriptions that they can, again, have at home. Now, I can't treat every patient the same, and every patient that I treat when they're sick is, is treated differently. You have a diabetic, right? You have to watch what you give them. You have somebody with advanced heart disease. You have to watch what you give them, and you have to be cautious of the interactions with the supplements and the medicines that they're on. So, you know, there is no simple cookbook here. This is great for everybody. You know, if somebody has liver or kidney disease, you have to watch how they're going to clear their vitamins as well as their drugs. And so it's really important to have a physician that knows how to intervene early and they can guide you through it. Uh, so, Christine, as we were treating patients early on, we would do an initial intake on the phone or by video, and then we would contact them every single day for an update, and we would modify what we were recommending to them. So that kind of close follow-up, it was rare for anybody to go in the wrong direction. Wow, wow. So you have done, you've done your homework. What about if somebody, you know, contracts COVID? Their early treatment 
You're, yes. I, I take it you're a supporter of the early treatment. Absolutely. And so part of what I've said here is the early treatment, and that is where we have you increase the levels of those vitamins. So I, you know, like the vitamin C, you are taking maybe a thousand milligrams twice a day for prevention. And now I will want you to take 2000 milligrams, maybe four or six times over the course of the day. So a much higher dose. Vitamin A, if you have no liver disease and we're not worried about side effects, I'll push that dose high. That's been shown to protect the lungs and have antiviral effects. Uh, your NAC, if you start to get mucus and such, we're going to crank that dose up. So maybe you were just taking a 500 milligram capsule for prevention. Now you're going to take two of those capsules three times a day so that it thins the mucus and supports the lungs. So we're going to increase those doses and we're going to bring those over-the-counter medications in. And for those at high risk, we're going to add the prescriptions as well. I will nebulize a medication that's used for asthma uh, called budesonide. It is a steroid medication. And especially in diabetics where I'm reluctant to go with oral steroids because it's going to throw their blood sugars off the chart. Nebulized steroids are a very good way to start early so you can keep the inflammation in the lungs at bay. So the patients that are at significant risk, we actually have them have the medication available, have a nebulizer available. So at the onset of their symptoms, they are, they're ready to go and they don't have to be scrambling um, to try and get everything. So in your, in your pamphlet, um, you know, I would love to be able to publish that. Um, I don't know if, if you if you want to release that, but I mean, it would be nice for for people to know that there is an option, and these are some treatments that have been tried, tested, uh, and they do they do work. Yeah, you know what I'll tell you is there are a number of such things. Lots of people have tried to put things out as such, and mm -hmm. again, I I modify it a lot, but I can certainly give my general guidelines. You know, mm -hmm. with a caveat that you need to be under the care of a knowledgeable physician. Uh, be happy to share that. Uh, but you know, my protocols literally. You know, when when this first hit, the only thing we heard from the NIH was social distance, wear masks. You know, everything non-essential was shut down. That was basically the treatment protocol. And then, if you couldn't breathe, you went to the emergency room. Right. And so that was the situation we were in. And that is just like, no, I think I can do more than that. And so it leads you to look at what's published, what's out there, what makes sense. You know, that's kind of what we were taught, right? So in residency at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, we were taught to practice evidence-based medicine. Evidence-based medicine has three components the experience of the clinician, that means the experience of the doctor. So that means what skills do I have? You know, I have experience treating asthma and allergy. Okay, so I have that. I have experience using vitamins in high doses. That helps me. Um, what does my patient want? My patient says, at no cost am I going to the hospital. Okay, so that tells me is I better act swiftly and I better keep this person out of the hospital because otherwise they're going to die. And so the, you know, their values, their belief system is critical. There are patients that just want no drugs at no cost. And, and you try to talk them and say, okay, wait a minute. There are times when a medication, when a drug is useful. So, so 
working with their value system is critical. And the third one is the available, you know, making use of the best available scientific information. So if there isn't any, and the NIH guidelines hardly have any guidance right. for things that work, so then, okay, let me do the best I can based on my knowledge. And, and then looking to other physicians doing the same thing. And, and so other physicians have published what they have found useful. I take a look at that. I look at my experience. I look at, I pull the literature on everything anybody says works. And, and on that basis kind of, you know, develop what I do. And it has continuously evolved as I took care of more and more patients. I think I got better and better at it, which makes sense, more and more efficient at it. And, and it changed, kept adding things. Okay, this makes sense. That makes sense. Replace this with this. And to me, that is evidence-based medicine. And I'm doing exactly what I was taught to do. I am not doing guideline medicine because there are no guidelines here. So how do you feel about your profession? Uh, we have interviewed many vax injured. And just because that they worked at a hospital or they were in the healthcare industry, many of the early rollout vax injured were involved in some way in the health industry. And their interviews with us um, exemplify how disappointed they are in their profession, because when they did reach out to doctors and when they were interviewed uh, following their vaccinations, they didn't get any response because there, there was no guidelines from the FDA, CDC. Um, it, it changed for the cardio, in, I think it was June 2021, uh, over the Johnson & Johnson heart inflammation. But even now they suffer from neurological and vascular issues. And there's not, it hasn't, those two categories haven't even been recognized by the FDA, NIH, NIAID, and CDC to provide any protocols to the doctors treating the patients in the ERs. Yeah, they can't quite provide the protocols until they acknowledge that these injuries are happening. So that's step one. And I am treating vaccine injured patients, a variety of constellation of symptoms, as well as post-COVID syndrome patients, and they are very difficult to treat. The vaccine injuries do not just go away, and they lead to all kinds of other underlying problems, uh, and it is very difficult. These patients I get, they're literally in tears when I listen to them because the other doctors, they have gone to cardiologists, they've gone to neurologists, they've gone to psychiatrists, they've gone to rheumatologists. Nobody listens, nobody acknowledges. It's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Uh, I started uh, talking to Vaxinjured uh, early last year, and then there was a larger group by June, July, and we put them on camera and we continue to put them on camera. And the one thing that somebody in Fauci's group said to me was, Christine, if we have 6 million vaccinations and 325,000 cause blood clots, we can't, we know how to treat the blood clots. We have something for that. And I said to the, that person at the time, try that on somebody, another journalist, because I said the people that I'm speaking to who are vaccine injured, nobody has one ailment. It's multiple ailments and it changes daily and they have no certainty and there's no, there's no uh, window. There's no light uh, because they don't know what's going to come next because a treatment may work for a day. It may not work for a day. The tremors come back, the tinging in the ears. Uh, they stood up one day and the next day they can't walk. It's tragic. 
It, it absolutely is tragic. I just saw a young woman a uh, couple of days ago this week, in fact, and and she was just just in tears. I mean, her whole life is is basically lost, mm -hmm. and 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 nobody believes her. Nobody believes her, and 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 we we found you know after a while when we would do these interviews, you know, the, the patterns would emerge. Uh, and in some cases, they would tell them, oh, you're suffering from anxiety or it's all in your head or we want to prescribe you some SSRIs. And they weren't they 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 were like, no, I'm not crazy. These are physical things that are happening to me. And and, and it seems as if the the people that should be listening to these patients are not listening to these patients. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I am just floored. I had uh, actually my next door neighbor is a patient from a vaccine injury. And that was a little over a year ago now. Uh, and, you know, he's still working through this, getting better, but he has suffered uh, really extremely. And, and he, you know, finally came um, about two weeks ago and he says, you know, I finally met a doctor who acknowledges that this is related to the vaccine. They, they, everybody just simply denies it. That's right. And they and even if they do think that it is a vaccine, um, they're not the doctors are not going to not all doctors will report it to VAERS. Uh, and in some some cases, the hospital administrators have told the doctors who work at the hospital, even if they acknowledge it being related to the vaccination shots, that before they file a report with VAERS, they have to send it upstairs to the administrative office. So they, it's 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 a real game to kill vaccination hesitancy when people should be questioning. They should be questioning. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just, you know, everyone I know, my brother's a cardiologist here in town, and he says, I've never seen this many of my patients just dropping dead. He says, I have never experienced that. People are just dying left and right. And they're not dying of COVID. They're they're dying of a variety of things, you know, heart attacks, strokes, uh, hemorrhages, brain hemorrhages, all kinds of things. You know, we are seeing strokes in people uh, in their 30s and 40s like, like never before. We're seeing heart attacks, again, like never before. So mm -hmm. there's clearly a lot of collateral damage that's happening from the vaccines. Doctor, do you, do you feel that ethics has gone out the window? in the medical profession, and it's been revealed going through this COVID crisis? Yeah, you know, it was on a, it, it was ongoing, because even before COVID, I pulled out of conventional medicine, I pulled out of the insurance system, and, and totally went out, because I saw the weaknesses and the deficiencies in it, and, and working under insurance, your, your hands were tied. This way, it's what the patient wants, and what I think will help the patient, it, it, there's nobody else in the equation. And so when you put third parties in the equation, it, it's it's out the door. And so it was bad. COVID has really brought it. I mean, it's at this point so overtly obvious that I don't know how it is still continuing. So what do you see... Um... And I say this as somebody who's empathetic. I mean, I, I've worked in the traditional mainstream media um, and, and, I, and I'm disappointed of how this has been covered. 
Uh, I, I've been in the business for a long time. I remember when the first the first ads went on television, <clears throat> um, and we were one, and then we were the first country to put them up there. Then I saw the the birth of the internet twenty years ago, and now that was the wild west. It was another market to put up the the ads um, for pharmaceuticals. Uh, now we have vaccination, and there's, there's even Gardasol, you know, vaccination ads on on television. How do you see your industry recovering from this so that people trust doctors? Is it, I mean, because we have the same issue in the news business. How do we get the public to trust what we put forward? Because there's been so much damage done. Do you see any way to gain that trust back? Or is it, is it, is it just so breached at this point? Well, you know, it is obviously very disrupted. The only way out is going to be to create transparency. And right now there is so much corruption in the system um, that there, there is no way out unless we change that. So we have to change um, the fundamentals of how the system operates in order to get anywhere. You know, when the hospital payments are in line with following protocol rather than outcome-based, uh, it's it's extremely difficult to, um, you know, have patient confidence because it it doesn't exist. That's not how they're treated. Mm -hmm. We had we also found that even though doctors were getting beaten up for recommending early treatments uh, of COVID with ivermectin. We found through, and this is just going through, you know, interviews after interviews and keeping in touch with Vax Injured, that some Vax Injured even tried ivermectin and they and they had a positive response with using ivermectin. And then when it was basically taken off the market or pharmacies were not filling it, you, you couldn't, it worked for some early treatments in some people and the doctor's hands were tied. The patients couldn't get a hold of it. And then down the, on the on the flip side, you had the vax injured who wanted to get ivermectin, but and it did work. But now they can't get any more ivermectin. So it's almost it's you know it's almost as if they're taking some of these products off the market, even though they're off label, and they have been used in the past. And then you you get the the CNN, and I say this as the former political director at CNN, but CNN kept on saying when people took ivermectin, it was a horse medicine, right. which is craziness because it was created for river blindness in Africa. Um, it, it just seems to me that th this is an uphill battle and, and you know, the ice has to break open. Is it, is it, is it, do we do this by exposing the fraud? I think that is a big component of it. I think we have to put in a system where there are no conflicts of interest in the CDC, in the FDA, in the NIH. If we can't clear out our conflicts of interest, we, we don't have a hope. And, and there is so much money behind it. So that's what takes control of the media. That's what takes control of doctors' behaviors. Um, there's just a ton of money behind it. And if we can't you know, unfortunately, the politicians have also been uh, have also bought into this paradigm, and so we can't get policy against it. That's true, but they have to be exposed too. 
they have, they have to be they have to be exposed to their financials have to be exposed absolutely. Uh, their speaking engagements have to be exposed absolutely i agree with you on that that yeah. that type of financial transparency is uh, tantamount um to, to, to really get and it's not it's not the only issue that has to be exposed but it's 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 a component that everybody has to talk about the pharmaceutical manufacturing research association which is the lobbying arm of it which is hidden and and then also you have the individual pharmaceutical donations. Yeah, you know, what's happened over the last hundred years is they have gradually squeezed every other approach to healing out. And the only one that was left, everything else was dismissed as quackery. Everything else, you know, the only things that were acceptable were drugs and surgical interventions. And, and over time, they continue to squeeze that out. So it becomes more and more difficult for patients and for doctors to obtain natural substances and natural therapies. And so all of these things just continue to be under attack where their availability goes away. And if the only interventions you have left to become drugs, then they improve their market share. That's true. That's true. So let's talk about uh, May 4th, Columbus, Ohio presentation uh, at this at this uh, state capitol, and what do you hope to accomplish um, during this all day event? That is open to the public, I should say. Yes, um, you know what I hope to um, to achieve is just basically to get the word out. I am not practicing any funny medicine. I am simply practicing good medicine, which is individual care, which is treating based on the condition of the patient, the stage of the disease, based on the best available information. And so to withhold treatment because it has not been blessed with a guideline is to me not humane. It is not what I was aiming for when I became a doctor and with the aim of helping the ill. So I cannot withhold things that help just because they've not met the uh, blessing of a given guideline, again, by biased interests. So I, I hope to shed light on that is that all I am doing, I am practicing exactly the way I was taught at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, which was evidence-based medicine, right? Look at my skill level, look at my patient's desires and look at the best available information that is appropriate for this patient. So in closing, because you are a graduate of Hopkins, um, are you disappointed in Hopkins throughout this? Yeah, the role Hopkins has played has not been ideal. You know, um, I was there for six years, a long time, and it was an amazing experience because everything I learned was from world experts in whatever care. And, you know, the integrity of the people that were there at that time was, was amazing. And so now it just seems that the conflicts of interest are, are just controlling everything. How, how, how well known is it within the medical and healthcare industries about the conflicts of interest? It is not well known at all. Not doctors do not know it. People certainly don't know it. <coughs> I'm, I'm amazed at how well 
it has been shielded. Mm-hmm. 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 That's another hurdle that we have to cover. That's because, huge. And I think I think that that you know, I don't I don't know if that level of shame uh, will wake people up, but I certainly think that that's that's that that needs to be put on the table. People need to be completely exposed for the conflicts of interest and the the monetary remunerations, whether it be the speaking fees or whether it be the resorts or whether it be the direct uh, financial gains. You know, that's where control of the media is the problem. All this information is accessible. It's available. That's right. We cannot disseminate it. That's right. Well, some of us can and some of us are trying to uh, and some of us will in Ohio. I mean, because they're they're. they're there, there are some politicians um, and there are some people that are in the medical and the scientific uh, arenas who have huge conflicts of interest in influencing policy on the state level in Ohio. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and again, uh, journalists like yourself, you know, Robert Kennedy, uh, it's just great to have people like you uh, involved because um, you know, I'm I'm just, you know, like they say, an old country doc. I just take care of patients. That's what I do. Uh, and I do it in the best way possible. Um, all of these changes are operating on such a huge level that it feels like anything I'm doing is a little drop in the bucket. Well, I think we all feel like we're doing a little drop in the bucket because the 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 one thing that I've repeatedly said is this level, this level of corruption. And, I, and I've been, you know, covering corruption for a long many years as a journalist. This level of corruption is very, very deep, and it's very, very, it's it's very, very layered. And there's a lot of people that are involved. But I do believe it's a winnable war. It's just going to take a little bit of longer to do. Defeat this. is not an option, Christine. We I know that's true. It is. It, 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 it that's why I keep telling people it's a winnable war. No matter no matter what happens, in the end, they everybody's going to be revealed. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I came I came to this country as a child. My father had gotten a scholarship and uh, got a PhD in the US. He came out of some village in remote South Asia and ended up with a PhD, went back, served his country for a while, and he got into the educational system and there was corruption there and they were trying to manipulate him and 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 that was just not what dad could handle. So Back at that time, he could get a visa as a professional to the U.S. He did. He brought us here, educated us here. He basically ran from corruption. And the idea here was everything is straight. Everything is transparent. And and so, so many of us that have been imports into this country came because we thought that we were running away from corruption. That must be a shock because I've said to people, um, part of my shock, I think, in the last two years has been to see this level of corruption. I've seen it in other countries. I've seen it in war zones. Um, I've seen it in third world countries, uh, poor countries. And I've often said in the last two years, I never thought that I would see it at this level within the government. Um, I've always been critical of the campaign finance laws here in the United States. Absolutely. Um, but I, but this level of corruption is something that really is shocking to me. I didn't. I always thought that you know you could come home from from a third world country, but you could be safe in America. But that's not true anymore. No. 
No. You know, I it's just the the uh, freedom of speech is restricted so much. You know, um, I, I have had tons of videos taken off YouTube, and all I'm saying is improve your immunity. Take mm -hmm. vitamin C or get your vitamin D level up. And these things somehow become banned. It, it just really makes no sense. No, but except for if you put, if you, if you understand that the motivation is to not have any vax hesitancy because they want to make this into an annual mandated booster uh, and the motivation is money and it's profits over people's health and freedom, then you can absorb, okay, what is the game? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not pretty. It is definitely, um, it, it, it's just, it's unthinkable what we're seeing now. And, you know, I feel like we're on the back nine of our lives, but I really feel for the children. I feel for our children that, you know, the world that they're in, I, I don't know what the future holds. I don't think any of us do, but I think it's, it's time that we all speak up. Doctor, thank you for joining us today. We'll see you in Columbus, Ohio on May 4th at the state capitol. Thank you, Christine.